tonight we are finishing up chapter 18 of Knowing God. Uh, last week we looked at the first half of the chapter, which is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. And the focus of chapter 18 is on propitiation. And that is a big word, but he argues in chapter 18 that it's a word that we need to know, a word that we need to understand and not lose sight of, otherwise we lose sight of the gospel. He started out the chapter, just a quick review, he started out the chapter talking about pagan propitiation in the way that in the ancient world, in pagan polytheistic thought, you had a bunch of different gods, all with their little spheres of influence, and they could make things difficult for you. And so in their thinking, in their religious ways, you would appease the gods by making some kind of a gift or some kind of a sacrifice and try to get them propitiously uh, disposed toward you, uh, to be favorable to you. Um, and so what, you, what ended up you had in the system is basically a, a manipulative system in which you basically were trying to manipulate the gods into doing what you wanted and trying to keep them happy all the time. And so it was a man-centered approach and obviously built around false myths and false legends, false theologies. And so he says, well, if that's how it was in pagan thought, then maybe we shouldn't even talk about propitiation in the Bible. But the Bible does talk about propitiation. And it does have a concept of God being propitiated. Of course, the difference is in the Bible, we don't have many gods. We have one God, right? We have one God. He was the creator of heaven and earth, and he has one overall dominion over everything. And also, God is not like these other small g gods in that he is true. He is faithful. He is just. He doesn't ebb and flow. He doesn't sway back and forth with everything that changes. Uh, so God uh, isn't, doesn't have a bad temper, doesn't fly off the handle, isn't easily provoked, is uh, the God of the Bible. But the Bible does talk about propitiation. And so the idea of propitiation, the fundamental idea of it is that God and his righteous anger, his righteous indignation towards sin would be appeased, would be satisfied. And so he talked about propitiation throughout the Bible, but just to highlight some of the things he said about propitiation in the New Testament, he said, Paul reminds us in Romans 3 that propitiation is really the rationale of God's justification of sinners. In order for God to be just and in order for God to be merciful, together in Christ, his wrath is satisfied. His holy anger, his holy judgment against sin is satisfied in Christ so that he can be favorably disposed towards us in the gospel. So propitiation is the rationale of God's uh, being able to justify sinners without losing his justice and righteousness. He also uh, reminded us in the scriptures that uh, in Hebrews that uh, the incarnation of the Son of God was to come and be one of us so that he would fulfill this mission to give himself in propitiation for our sins. Uh, in the heavenly intercessory ministry of our Lord, in John 17, as well as in Hebrews, we see that uh, Jesus stands as our high priest. 
And as high priest, he not only uh, stands as our mediator between God and man, but he also is the sacrifice. And he offered himself to be our uh, mediator, our intercessor. And then in the first John, he reminded us that the very love of God is defined in this way, that God would give his son to the cross so that he would propitiate our sins. That is like the definition, the, ex- the greatest expression of love in first John. And then he talked about uh, in one of the sections that we looked at last week, the idea that propitiation is not just expiation. What's the difference? Expiation and some translations of the Bible have it as that expiation or atoning sacrifice, removal of our sins, something along those lines. He says that uh, propitiation is all that expiation is and more. So expiation is the covering or the atonement of our sins. But then propitiation goes to the next step and says, because of that atonement, because our sins are covered, God's holy righteous anger against us is satisfied. So that then there can be a relationship of reconciliation and peace. So expiation is only part of the equation of propitiation. It includes that and the satisfaction of God's anger. And so then he talked about God's anger and the fact that God's anger is not like the anger of the gods that we talked about uh, in the pagan polytheistic way. It's not uh, God just, um, you know, being capricious and reacting to all the different things that happen in the world. God's anger is fundamentally built on his holiness, on his righteousness. And so his anger is an expression of that, a sure, settled, secure righteousness and holiness and justice, that his anger then is a response to that. He also reminded us that God's anger is not like uh, human anger that is sinful, prideful, um, irritable. God's anger is built on his holiness and righteousness. And then he described for us Um, propitiation, how that propitiation is the work of God himself. And this is a crucial distinction between pagan ideas of propitiation and a biblical doctrine of propitiation. Because in pagan polytheism, it was the people that tried to propitiate the gods. So the gods were upset with you for something. And so you had to, something that you could do by a gift or a sacrifice, you were the one who had to initiate that. You were the one who had to try to satisfy the gods by some kind of sacrifice. So it was on you. The Bible doesn't describe it that way at all. God is the one who provides the sacrifice. God is the one who initiates the resolution to the the relationship. And so God is the God whose anger needs to be propitiated, but he's also the God who is loving and provides the sacrifice by which his anger is propitiated. So he is the one who does it. It's the work of God. And the way he does it is through the death of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament sacrifices in which God's anger was turned away from the sins of the people, all those animal sacrifices, they were 
they were looking forward. They were provisional. They were typological, looking forward to the ultimate final sacrifice to come in Christ. And so through the work of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, God's righteous anger is propitiated. And Paul reminds us in Romans that in doing this, God demonstrates his righteousness. In Romans 3, he said, God demonstrated his righteousness at this time when when Christ went to the cross, that God could show public display for all the world to see that God is just, that he is righteous, that sin does not go unpunished, that sin is being punished, but it's being punished in his own loving gift, sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And by that, he then can, in conjunction and harmony with his own character, offer mercy. He's just and merciful, and that's satisfied in Christ. And that was put on public display, declared openly for everyone to see. And that brings us then to the second half of the chapter, which we're going to focus on tonight, which is starting with the death of Christ. And he says the basic description of the saving death of Christ in the Bible is as a propitiation. That is, as that which quenched God's wrath against us by obliterating our sins from his sight. So God was righteous. We sinned. His holiness and righteousness then responds appropriately, rightly in holy wrath, holy anger towards sinners. The only means by which that can be satisfied is the gift of Christ himself, Christ on the cross. He says the sins of all that will ever be pardoned were judged and punished in the person of God, the son. And it is on this basis that pardon is now offered to us offenders, redeeming love and retributive justice joined hands, so to speak at Calvary for there God showed himself to be just and the justifier of him that hath faith in Jesus. And so in the cross, God's justice and mercy come together and are satisfied. One of the things he says at this part in the chapter is that the gospel is not fundamentally about a solution to our human problems. And he says, sometimes the gospel is presented in such a way that it's as if you're offering to the unbeliever, to the lost person, come to Jesus and A, B, and C will all be fixed in your life. He'll take care of your marriage. He'll bring you, uh, you know, joy in your life. He'll, you know, whatever it is in your relationships, in your own psychological needs, whatever. Sometimes the gospel is put forward that way as Jesus is the solution to all of your human needs and problems. But he says that really misses the heart of the gospel because the heart of the gospel is not really about what we need or our relationships with other people, human to human. Our fundamental lack is a break in our relationship with God. So you look at Genesis three, when Adam and Eve sinned, yes, all kinds of stuff entered into the world when they sinned, curse and, uh, you know, frustration and blaming one another and breakdown of human relationships. But the fundamental thing that started all of that 
was they broke the relationship with God. That is fundamentally what needs to be fixed first. And then everything else, all other solutions flow out of that, that our relationship is fixed with our creator. And so he says, other human problems only have a true remedy through this reconciliation with God in Christ. That's the heart of the gospel, is that we would be then reconciled and made at peace with our maker. And so then he provides some descriptions of the death of Christ in the Bible. And he says, sometimes the death of Christ is talked about in different ways. Sometimes it's referred to as reconciliation, the the coming together of two parties. Uh, Sometimes it's referred to as redemption, uh, a a purchase in order to set free, uh, purchase out of slavery. Um, Sometimes it's talked about in terms of a sacrifice, one giving for another. Um, It's talked about in terms of self-giving or of bearing sin or of bloodshedding. And he says, liberal theologians want to say that all of those things are kind of distinct. And so you have like all of these different things that are going on in the atonement. But he says, no, really all of those ideas, all of those words are really bound together and are linked together by this idea of propitiation. That we are redeemed from slavery and set free and made gods because God's wrath toward us has been propitiated. We are adopted into his family because his wrath toward us has been propitiated. So a lot of these ideas of the work of Christ on the cross are bound together with the idea of propitiation. He says all these thoughts have to do with the putting away of sin and the restoring of unclouded fellowship between man and God. As a glance at the text mentioned will show, and all of them have as their background the threat of divine judgment, which Jesus' death averted. So all of those different words, they're not in conflict with one another. They're all joined together in relationship with one another around this idea that that we have a fundamentally broken relationship with God and he is angry at us because of our sin. And we need that to be reconciled. And so propitiation, he says, is really the heart of the gospel. That's what this chapter is all about. What's the heart of the gospel? It is this work of Christ that reconciles us to God and appeases his wrath. He says the heart of the gospel, and it's also the vantage point from which we can see the heart of many other biblical teachings as well. So he says, when we come to the top of this peak of propitiation, we get a better understanding of the gospel, but we also get a better understanding of the whole lay of the land of, of scripture and what's going on. And so he brings us to the driving force of Jesus' life. And he says, when you read through the gospel of Mark, uh, you get some clear impressions about what Jesus' life was about and how he viewed his own life and ministry. And what was that? One is, if you read Mark's gospel, it's clear that he's a man of action. And, and Mark is written in that way. It's, it's a quick-moving gospel. But you see Jesus going from place to place. He's teaching. He's healing. He's showing compassion. He's, he's calling disciples. He's uh, mentoring them and discipling them. He's uh, on the way to the cross. He is a man on a mission, if you will, in the book of Mark a man of action. He is a man who knew himself to be a divine person. 
So you read through the Gospel of Mark and it becomes clear that Jesus of Nazareth had a self-awareness that he was a divine person. He was the son of God sent here to do a messianic mission as the son of man. He had that self-consciousness. He was a man whose messianic mission centered on his being put to death. And that was clear in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark. You can see that, that many times he predicts his own death, that this is what's coming. His disciples don't understand it. They don't get it. And for the vast majority of the people, probably everyone at that time, the concept of a suffering Messiah just they could not even comprehend it. A Messiah was a king, a ruler, someone who conquered, a glorious one, not someone who suffered and died. And so they could never reconcile those ideas until after the resurrection. But Jesus knew what he was here for, and he was on mission and looking toward what he came here to do. He said in the Gospel of Mark that he's come to give his life as a ransom for many. So he was a man on a mission to uh, on the way to death. And he says that it's clear in the Gospel of Mark that he was a man for whom this experience of death was the most fearful ordeal. And that's an interesting thought. And he kind of expands on that a little bit. And he says, why would Jesus, who throughout his entire life and ministry, really had no fear of just about anything else? He didn't have fear of man. He didn't worry what people thought about him. He oftentimes was put in very dangerous situations where his life was in danger, where they're about to stone him, but it wasn't his time and he slipped through the crowd and he was fine. No, no, at no time do you see Jesus afraid in the gospels, except in the idea of what was impending in his death. You see him in the garden of Gethsemane in dread, uh, thinking about what was coming. If it be possible, Father, let this cup pass for me. And he says, why, how can we account for this? How can we account for Jesus' belief in the necessity of his death, that this was what he was here for, his mission, but also in the sense of dread that he had of it. How can we account for that? And he says, really, the only way we can account for that is the biblical doctrine of propitiation. That Jesus knew that this was his mission and it was necessary, it was a part of God's plan to redeem sinners. And also he understood what that meant that in giving himself to the death of the cross, he was not merely taking upon him human pain. He was taking upon himself divine wrath, divine anger against sin. And that's really what he meant when he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. You read the Old Testament and the idea of a cup is usually in many places in the context of God's cup of wrath, a cup of divine judgment in which Jesus had to drink from it and taste, as Hebrews says, taste death. He had to experience this wrath of God and in that way uh, propitiate the anger of God so that we would be then reconciled to him. So Jesus' dread for the cross was not just the human pain, the physical pain. And yes, dying on a Roman cross was one of the most dreadful ways to die in the whole history of the world. But that's not fundamentally what his dread was about. It was about, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me on the cross of Calvary? That's what he was looking, uh, dreading. And he says that that really can only be understood through this doctrine of propitiation through atonement. He says the driving force in Jesus' life was his resolve to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the unique dreadfulness of his death lies in the fact that he tasted on Calvary the wrath of God, which was our due, so making propitiation for our sins. We deserve that. We deserve that pouring out of the anger of God against our sins. But Jesus drank it. Jesus took it for us. As Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 53, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And indeed he was bearing the punishment of God, but for us because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace, reconciliation, relationship was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. So understanding propitiation, he says, helps us understand the Jesus view of his own life and death. He says also the doctrine of propitiation helps us understand what the Bible says of those who reject God. Uh, Contrary to what many think, some liberal theologians, but also kind of the world at large, I think, had this kind of generic universalism that everybody eventually is going to be saved, that regardless of what path you follow, everybody's going to be fine in the end. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that all will eventually be saved. It says that those who in this life reject God will forever be rejected by God. There is a doctrine of punishment, of eternal judgment. Jesus himself taught it. And so to think of what the lost bring on themselves through their rejection, he says, consider the cross. So in other words, why would, why would those who reject God need or need to go through this? And what, what are they suffering? He says, really to understand that, look at the cross. Because that's how serious God takes sin. And the need for it to be judged and someone held accountable for that sin. So for those who are in Christ, Jesus satisfies that for them. But for those who are not in Christ, to those who reject, they will taste the cup of God's wrath themselves. And so we can see in the cross what that means. In the cross, we see Jesus bearing the retributive justice of God. The sinner who rejects God will bear that for eternity. The retributive justice of God. We see in Calvary a withdrawal and deprivation of all good. This bleakness, this darkness, this forsakenness that Jesus felt on the cross as if all good was kind of taken away from him. This spiritual darkness, a a loneliness, a pain, a horror of great spiritual darkness. That is what the lost will endure. He says, Calvary shows that under the final judgment of God, nothing that one has valued or could value, nothing that one can call good remains to one. It is a terrible thought, but the reality we may be sure is more terrible yet. It would be better for him if he had not been born 
That's what Jesus said of Judas, because he was lost and betrayed Christ. Jesus said it'd be better for him not to be born. That's what awaits those who reject God. And we can see the, what they will, at least a glimpse of what they will experience in what Christ went through on the cross, in the, the, what he bore and took upon himself. We also, through this doctrine of propitiation, have a better understanding of what peace is when the Bible talks about peace. Sometimes when we think about peace, we have this idea of a feeling, uh, kind of a, a calmness or a tranquility. Uh, sometimes we'll, people will talk in language like, I just have a peace about that, or I just feel at peace. But he says, primarily, the Bible doesn't speak in this way. Primarily, fundamentally, the Bible speaks of peace in terms of relationship, in terms of God's pardoning us and accepting us into covenant, adopting us into his family. The idea of peace is really reconciling two parties together. The peace of God is first and foremost peace with God. It is the state of affairs in which God, instead of being against us, is for us. Now, can that bring a sense of tranquility and calmness and confidence and assurance? Sure, but the foundation of it, the root of it, is that we are now in a relationship of love with God, not a relationship of wrath or of justice. So the feeling of peace comes from the standing of peace, one way of thinking of it. The peace of God then primarily and fundamentally is a new relationship of forgiveness and acceptance. And the source from which it flows is propitiation. Christ satisfies the demands of God's holiness so that we can be reconciled and at peace. And this happens through his cross work. Colossians 1.20, through him that is through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus' atoning work is what made peace between us and God. And he says propitiation can also help us understand at least a glimpse of the dimensions of God's love. And he mentions Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, which really is an amazing passage when you think about it from this perspective. In Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, Paul is praying a prayer for the Ephesian Christians of what he prays that God would do for them and give them insight into. And he says that he prays that the Ephesian Christians would have all power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's kind of an interesting way that Paul puts that, isn't it? So that you may know how high and deep, how, how wide is the love of Christ, which is really unknowable, he says. To know a love that surpasses knowing, that surpasses knowledge. So he says, how can we know an unknowable love? He says, well, we can get um, a glimpse of it, a, a some comprehension of it by understanding God's plan of grace, which is revealed in Ephesians 1 and 2. What is that plan of grace? Well, at the heart of it is the atoning work of Christ, which satisfies the wrath of God and reconciles us to him. 
that is the center of that plan of grace. And so that helps us get some idea of a glimpse of the love of Christ. And he goes on to describe Christ's love from Ephesians. Christ's love in Ephesians is free. It's not elicited by any good in us. Nothing that we've done, nothing that we could earn, not how, how great we are, how good we look, how successful we are. It is all of Christ. It's free. He says it's eternal. Christ's love is eternal. You see in Ephesians 1 and 2, especially this idea of union with Christ, in him, with Christ, in him from before the foundation of the world. Christ's love for us is eternal. And his love for us then would be worked out in time, but it was established from eternity past. Christ's love for us is unreserved. He gave himself to the depths of humiliation and the wrath of God on Calvary. He gave himself fully for us. And it's sovereign in the sense that Christ's love is effectual love, is effective. It accomplishes its purpose, which ultimately is the redemption and glorification of all of God's people. So it is effectual. And so he says, dwell on these things. Paul urges, if you would catch a sight, however dim, of the greatness and the glory of divine love. So it's can't know it completely, but we can grow in knowing it, in growing low, lower and higher and wider in our comprehension of it. And one way to do that is by understanding what Christ has done for us in this gospel plan. And then he finishes the chapter by reminding us that all of this is ultimately for the glory of God. It's ultimately for God's glory. John thirteen thirty one. When he was gone, and that's referring to Judas Iscariot, who had left the upper room, went out to do his deed. Jesus said to his disciples, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And you think about the context in which Jesus made that statement. What was about to happen? He was about to go to the most, earthly speaking, the most humiliating and shameful thing that you could imagine. He was about to go to the cross, which was not only intended to make you suffer physical pain, but also intended to humiliate you publicly and shame you in front of everyone for all to see. And he says, in this, I'm being glorified. Seems completely backwards. But he says, now the son of man is glorified. And so the glory of God and his wisdom, power, righteousness, truth, and love was supremely disclosed at Calvary in the making of propitiation for our sins. And something that the world would say is the absolute worst thing, the most humiliating, degrading thing that could happen in that Christ was most glorified, most honored. It is Christ's redemption, his shedding of blood for our salvation that makes him worthy of all glory and honor. Listen to what Revelation says. Revelation 5 is the context of the scroll that is in the hand of God. And everyone is sad and John is sad because no one is found worthy to take that scroll and to open its seals. But the angel says, don't fear because the lamb 
who was slain. He is here. And the lamb who was slain is worthy to take the scroll. And so it says they sang a new song saying, you, Christ, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then a couple of verses later, they sang again, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It is the center of the gospel and in it, Christ most glorified. And as Paul would say in Ephesians, all of this was to the praise of God's glorious grace, that he would do this in such a way that he would be praised and honored by his people as the gracious and merciful God for all time. God is honored in it. And so as he reminded us kind of in different points throughout the chapter, some theologians have a hard time with the idea of God being angry against sin and that anger needing to be propitiated. And so they want to take it out of the Bible or re-explain it or move around it. But he says, really, we can't do that. That is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. And, and instead of something to be ashamed of or to try to explain away, it is something that we should really dwell on and think on and glory in because God gloried in it. Christ gloried in it. And so that's just a reminder for us that when the Bible teaches something that comes from God, it is a glorious truth that we should not be ashamed of. And the world is going to say all kinds of things about what we believe or what the Bible teaches. They're going to try to shame us, but we should not be ashamed of what the Bible teaches, which is the heart of God's glorious gospel.